Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Aware of how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I vow to cultivate compassion and to learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, and all living beings. I'm determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone acts of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. understanding how deeply our lives intertwine. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I'm determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression. I vow to cultivate generosity by sharing my time, energy, and resources with those in need.
understanding how deeply our lives intertwine and how vulnerable we are as human beings. I undertake the training to refrain from harming others and myself using my sexuality, sexual activity. aware of the great suffering that can be caused by sexual misconduct. I vow to cultivate responsibility and to learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I respect the power of sexual energy as a force that can both heal and harm. And will do my best to use this with generosity, kindness, for the benefit of myself and others I encounter.
So right action is uh, part of the triad in the Eightfold Path that's related to sila, or ethical conduct. And it comprises these three different elements that I mentioned in the meditation, uh, which is three of the five uh, precepts that we take as lay people. So speech, noticeably, is pulled out as its own thing. So that has its own step on the Eightfold Path. Uh, so that's notable, how important that is and how that's worthy of its own spotlight. And then these three elements of uh, abstaining from destroying life, abstaining from taking what is not offered, and abstaining from sexual misconduct, so harming others and ourselves with sexual activity, energy, uh, are highlighted as particular things for us to pay attention to along the path. So I'm wondering in this meditation when I drop these in, if uh, there was anything that came up that you feel like you would like to share, anything interesting that uh, you noticed. And also today I would like to particularly invite those who haven't spoken a lot to speak to. You don't have to, but an invitation if you'd like to. So did that come up for you when I dropped that in? In what way did it come up for you? Um, the final thing that you said about, I don't remember what the word was. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I didn't repeat it to myself because I don't know. Right. Right. All right, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that for sure. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. So the way that I said the one about sexuality resonated more with you than when you read the classical sort of take on it, it sounded like. Yes, okay. My version was a hybrid of uh, different versions, including things that I just uh, read from my own heart in the moment. Um, but some of it was actually versions from Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, so Thich Nhat Hanh has some more expansive versions of the precepts. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist teacher. Uh, so I took sort of some pieces of um, 
his versions of them, um, which particularly include um, the dimensions of uh, sort of aware of blank, you know. Um, and then actually from another version I've heard before, I added in the part that was about um, aware of how deeply our lives intertwine, you know, like based on that, that we take these precepts. Um, but I kind of quilted it together. <laughs> yeah, Emma. Yeah. Right. Right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. These are all uh, very, very good uh, and helpful reflections to have. And really, you know, so the the main uh, articulation of these these elements of right action is again in actually the negative. So uh, I will abstain from this. So this is actually the piece in the path. Um, and uh, I think that's it's articulated like that for several reasons. So one is that uh, the Buddha is actually pointing us towards particularly particular actions that we take as human beings that have particularly strong and grave karmic consequences, for one thing, right? So actually the moment of killing, of actually destroying life, uh, is a very significant and powerful uh, planting of karmic seed. It's a very strong and, and particular action like that a human being can take, right? So if you will, there's sort of like the bright line kind of thing. It's like don't kill, right? Avoid killing, right? And then there's sort of the context within that, which is like, okay, avoid killing, but that also, it doesn't mean like you can beat someone but not kill them, right? Okay, <laughs> right, right. It doesn't mean, you know, like you can harm people, or, you know, it's, it's not like that, right? So there's the main one, which is like, don't kill, but then there's, of course, then understanding uh, uh, sort of below that, it's like, well, don't harm life, right? And then when you take it to the more positive side, it's like, oh, actually, actually we should try and protect life. And also if you pay attention to like, well, what could be the motivations? So in that moment of actually killing or of, you know, aggression, uh, of violence, right? It's a very intense moment of uh, violence, of aggression, of a separation of self and other that gets enacted, right, through the body uh, such that another being dies. And this could be a human being, it could be an animal, it could be an insect, uh, so many of people here are probably like, oh, you know, I got this. I don't kill people. I'm good, right? You know. Uh, but actually, it's good to pay attention to this in our own mind and body, right? And our own our own heart. So when does even that impulse arise within us? You know, the impulse to do harm to someone, like the aggressive impulse, right? And here again is where you have to be really super honest with yourself, right? Even if basically you're. A, decent law-abiding citizen, you know, uh, you know, if you are 
going along and you know there's someone in the who's uh, you're in the left lane and someone suddenly is going to turn but they didn't have their signal on which makes you sit there for a long time right uh, you know be aware does aggression arise within you right i mean likely you wouldn't actually get out of your car and kill them right likely right um, but still it's like does that impulse arise within you right and it's really helpful to to see that impulse arising in one's own heart both to understand like how this happens for someone else who might actually get out of the car and kill someone or you know who might actually do that so you understand like oh it's not like they're different than me right in some way uh, it's not like oh i'm so much better than them it's totally we're totally separate you know the arising of these impulses of greed of hatred of delusion come for all of us who are not completely and totally enlightened basically right and they come to greater or lesser extents and we we might act them out to greater or lesser extents but i feel like it's really helpful for us to see that to know what that feels like and then also to see the ways in which we do enact that in the world in some ways right for some people it might be that you still engage in killing in some way right so either uh you know hunting or even you know the act of killing insects or something like that which is actually societally condoned in america right uh or something like that right there's different ways in which one self one oneself actually might still be participating in that in some way or another right so it's helpful to really take a look at that and see how that plays out and pay attention to that in one's own heart and mind So I think you know in terms of like alignment you know yeah it's like the sort of integrity alignment you know saying in the beginning like the dhamma is like the truth of the way things are right so the truth of the way things are is actually that we are not separate from one another like there is this interconnection and these uh trainings around right action are both kind of like the trainings we take uh to get to a place of understanding you know we we take them from whatever level of understanding we have of that interconnection and do our best right but also interestingly like once you actually get to be a free uh liberated being this is how one naturally acts so one naturally acts from this sense of interconnection right it's not like um an effort so much to do this anymore right uh so it's just good to attend to that 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 level of, of it and um i think just take it seriously as a training you know regardless of uh uh what level you're paying attention right uh also again the training is actually for us to pay attention to ourselves so it's not actually a way to become better and better at judging others right <laughs> so the the focus is really on understanding cause and effect so you can actually attend to what there is in society and we'll talk about that in a moment too um but really like the focus is on becoming very honest within yourself around how this plays out So actually the Buddha taught that there's a circle around uh right action um by three other elements on this uh, eightfold path so right view right effort and right mindfulness so mindfulness of course is like actually to pay attention to know what's actually going on right so that makes sense uh right effort we haven't talked about yet but it actually is the observing like what it is that's arising in one's heart whether it's a intention of wholesome or unwholesome and then actually trying to cultivate the wholesome and trying to abandon the unwholesome so when one takes an action that is like killing life or that is like stealing something it's from the root of one of these unwholesome uh intentions right greed or hatred delusion usually there overall right uh and then right view so i'll get the right view in a moment how it plays out too so all right i'll take a couple of hands yeah kurt 
does um, a quick, unwholesome thought have karmic implications? A quick, unwholesome thought does have karmic implications. So karma is, is cause and effect, right? So uh, something arises, uh, the things that arise in the moment, we actually don't have control over, so to speak, right? Like that which arises is... Uh, it doesn't seem like you have control over what is arising right now. But then, like, say if a thought arises of, for example, aggression towards someone, then, and here's where, like, it may not seem like you have control, but part of the path is developing the ability to be mindful and to see this, is like, are we cultivating that thought along? So that the thought arises once is just happening in the moment. But if we actually get on that train, like, yeah, I can't believe that guy did that. I should do something about it. I should, you know, then you're actually sort of cultivating that aggressive uh, thought, and that's sort of planting the seeds for more of those thoughts to uh, arise in the future, right? Not even in the future, like in the next moment, right? <laughs> for you to like, continue in this sort of violent, aggressive manner. And that also is the root, then, of actually potentially taking some violent, aggressive action. So in that way, you know, thoughts are powerful, uh, and it's important to pay attention to them too. It's not as strong as taking the action. So this is specifically talking about the action. Um, but because we're talking about the whole Eightfold Path, I just want to emphasize, like, yeah, the, the thought part of it is uh, relevant and important. Right? That being said, like, you work wherever you are on it. Right? So some people, uh, at a certain level, like, can only work on the action part. Like Working on the level of thought is like, way too nuanced for them. Right? And just bodily restraint is good, you know. Nobody's knocking that. Like, <laughs> avoiding killing is good, right? Period, right? But also, like, paying attention to the, the deeper levels is also important, too. So, yeah, Karen. How, how do you reconcile the conflict between wise speech and protecting life? How do you mean by that? I think of it in the context of my work. Um, saying something that's not true Say something that's not true in protection of another person's life. Like a... I'm a public defender. Okay. I go to trial. Yeah. I've, on occasion, essentially asserted that the district attorney is racist because my intent is to get them to back off. And I've been successful. Right. And their conduct wasn't racist. And the judge called me on it at sidebar. And um, ultimately, I was able to protect my client's life. But, you know, here it is five years later, and it still sits with me. Yeah. So I think there's part of your answer right there, right? That it still sits with you five years later. Like, it felt like there's something off about that, too, right? <laughs> And now maybe if you did the opposite, also they would feel like there was something off. So this is, samsara is the flawed uh, cycle of <laughs> endless rebirth and ickiness that we're kind of all soaking in, uh, in which one has to make difficult choices. But uh, actually, I'm glad that you pointed to that, that, an example like that, because there is this kind of guide that we have within ourselves, you know, that kind of helps us to assess in some ways, right? And it's not always simple. Definitely life is not always simple. Like there's a lot that we have to just apply and do our best with particular circumstances. Buddha actually pointed this out in, uh, he he pointed out this uh, guardians of the world, 
is called Hiri and Otapa in Pali. And it's basically like having a conscience. Right? So having a conscience, in, and he pointed out these two different dimensions of it, one of which is uh, understanding the possibility of causing harm through uh, wrong action, and then also understanding uh, what the effects would be. So like what other people would think or what the effects would be on others from wrong action. So the uh, Victorian um, sort of old English translations of these were like moral fear and moral dread, which are not really very good translations. Right? Um, but it's sort of like conscience, having a conscience and then having concern about the results. And um, this well-known 6th century uh, um, monk, Buddha Gosa, uh, had given this um, metaphor of, um, so there's a, a stick that is burning hot at one end, and the other end is covered with excrement. So uh, your disgust at grabbing the end that's covered with excrement is like the hiri, and your fear of grabbing the other end that is glowing, burning hot <laughs> is the otapa. So is like the... Um, one is sort of an internal thing, like sort of oh, based on self-respect and conscience or, you know, that shrinking back, right, kind of thing that is there. Uh, and one is thinking about sort of the consequences and effects on others and, you know, maybe even like what other people will think and so on. And this is actually considered good. So it's not considered like the same, it's not the same as like guilt, right? So guilt is sort of like positing an individual self who owns action and who, you know, like stuff like that. But it actually is sort of like a wisdom element of, uh, oh, yeah, this leads to this, of like some understanding of cause and effect, like, oh, don't do that, that's not good, right? Uh, so this is actually considered, but they called it like the guardians of the world. So the guardians of the world, because prior to everyone in the world being fully enlightened, um, this is like a good proxy for <laughs> keeping us safe, right? At least, that there's some, some version of this, right, going on. Um, so to go to your point, Lexi, about the, about, uh, killing animals, but vegetarianism. So interestingly, like this, here's back to sort of like the bright line thing. It's very clear, like don't kill, right? Don't kill. So the recommendation is not to kill people, Buddhists include animals and so on. And yet, actually, most Buddhist countries are not vegetarian, right? Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, Nepal, Tibet, Dalai Lama eats meat, etc. So what's that about, right? Go figure, because... Clearly, it doesn't take much to extrapolate from like, okay, don't kill animals, but if you have meat, someone has killed the animal, right? Unless you're on like roadkill diet, right? Then it's like <laughs> accidental meat, but uh, right? Uh, mostly it's like somebody has actually intentionally killed that animal, so someone has actually taken on that karmic consequence, right? So this is also a, uh, in the Buddha's time, this was kind of a controversy too. And he, he his... Um, his, his precepts for his monks and nuns were, um, you know, they were like extreme renunciates, right? So they were, they, uh, there was a whole bunch of different renunciates at that time, different spiritual, you know, gangs, so to speak, right? Uh, but then each one had like slightly different precepts, right? So in general in that society, there was an understanding like, oh, if you put on a robe and you have this bowl and stuff, you're like some kind of renunciate, you're doing some kind of spiritual practice. And so then people would actually offer food, right? So usually those people didn't have money, they weren't, they didn't have... Um, property, they weren't farmers, all the way. So they would go and like get food, right? So the Buddha uh, told the, his, his followers, who are monks and nuns, um, take what's offered, right? So I want you to just take what's offered. 
So this is one of your trainings, is just go with your bowl, take what's offered. So not like, oh, can I have brown rice instead of white rice? Or, you know, actually, I'm starting to be gluten-free, so can I? Like, no, 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 you know, like, take what's offered. Just shut up and take what's offered, right? And notice what's going on in your heart and mind. If you're like, oh, don't put the salad dressing on top of the, you know, like, you know, it's all, it's all training to see that, to notice that, you know. And you can practice this here, too. Like, notice when you go down to the dining hall, like, if you're like, oh, no, not that soup again, right? You know, it's like... So you have to do this a little bit here, right? And uh, actually, I lived in a monastery in uh, Sri Lanka, I mentioned, for uh, about a year, and, and got this too. If people, you know, you just go sit there, and then people would come and serve you, and uh, you had to take what was given to you, right? And then, uh, you know, by and large, eat it, right? <laughs> uh, so he didn't want people, like, uh, you know, being picky about things. At the same time, he also told his followers, don't, uh, don't eat meat that you know has been killed for you. So he didn't. He encouraged people not to to specifically kill animals for his followers. Uh, but at the same time, if what people had to offer included meat, they were to take it and eat it. Right. So that was sort of a middle wayish kind of thing. Now that caused some controversy within the sangha too. So in fact, um, this cousin, Devadatta, who was kind of out to um, like take over the sangha and. Uh, did this long, like, antagonistic relationship uh, all during their lives. And, you know, David also tried to kill him various times. So it was very, like, um, sort of wily coyote roadrunner. He would, like, try and push a boulder on him and things like, you know, send, send like, crazy elephants at him, things like that. Um, but so David actually thought, you know, it was like, oh, this is not wholesome enough. Like, our, uh, the, the members of the order should be vegetarian. So this was, like, a little... Stricture. So at some point, like, he took a bunch of people off and were like, oh, that, uh, you know, uh, Buddha's monks aren't, aren't pure enough. Like, we're pure because we're vegetarian. And actually, at the same time, there were, like, the Jains. Um, you might have heard of Jainism. Um, and they were very strict about not killing stuff, and they would, like, sweep in front of them so they didn't step on bugs and all this stuff. Uh, but anyway, so this was how the Buddha presented it, right? Now, in Buddhist countries, like in, um, in Sri Lanka, where my family is from, uh, people eat meat a lot. So how does that work out, right? Like, who kills the meat? I actually asked my cousins the last time I was there, like, how this works. And they said, basically, that um, it's a multicultural society, and basically the Muslims are the butchers, and the Christians are the fishermen, right? So then, uh, this is how multiculturalism works for you, I guess. It's like, you know, and <laughs> these other people uh, incur... And then I think the Christians kill the pigs, because the Muslims won't kill the pigs, right? So then, anyway, there's some way in which different groups of people are participating in this, Right? So, you know, we all have to sort of suss this out ourselves. Like, what do you think about this? Is this some, like, giant loophole, you know, like, lame loophole, and, like, I can't participate in that? Also, paying attention to one's own bodily uh, needs, too, right? Like, what is it that, uh, like, can I, what can I do? Like, where, where can I participate uh, in this, both ethically and also uh, sort of uh, nutritionally or, you know, taking what I need or... What, I, what do I not need? So this goes also to the second precept, right? So the second training around um, taking what's not offered, right? So there's, there's stealing, you know, broadly speaking. And this is one in which maybe you might notice, um, you know, the impulse for acquisitiveness, right? The impulse to get stuff, you know, greed, whatever, right? And pay very close attention to this one, right? Pay very close attention to that arising of greed. Because here again, like, thought is very powerful. And... Uh, 
whenever you let yourself do that, I think about it like it's sort of like indulging some child or something, you know? Like, even if it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm using this pen from the bank or something, and I'll just, you know, take it along, or, you know, oh, there's a, like, six-month-old Sports Illustrated in the dentist's office, and surely no one wants this, but I like this article, so, you know. Um, but notice that there's just that acquisitive power of mind, and uh, it's sort of like, uh, am I going to feed that, or am I going to catch it on that? You know, it's sort of like having a kid who's like, naughty and it's like okay are you going to call them on it or not right uh and it's good to call kids on things right like don't let them like uh behave badly or something or that reinforces the behavior right they'll just like do that you take them to other people's houses they'll like do that whatever it is right like wipe their hands on the you know tablecloth or whatever right so you got to pay attention to the, the monkey mind it's like oh so even just for the sake of training, it's a good training to just be like nothing. Just, you know, this is craving. This is like acquisitiveness, right? Like nip that in the bud, cut that, you know. See with wisdom, like this is this powerful force and notice how it, it arises in all kinds of circumstances, right? And notice the power of it. You know, in that moment, it's sort of like there's you in this object and sometimes it can become so strong, right? Even for something ridiculous, like six-month-old Sports Illustrated, Right? there can become this sort of obsession of mind with that object. And then notice all the justifications that come through. It's like, oh, no one's going to need this. They probably would give it to me. And, you know, right? Like all this, this stuff. Like notice that happening. Uh, and it all, it all is training. Like this also is a very powerful moment. This is a powerful moment of, of karma for us. You know, how are we going to play this out? What do we want to train ourselves in? Like how do we want to reinforce our mind, right? So you could say in some ways that we're always training in something, right? So are we training in generosity or are we training in acquisitiveness, right? Are we cultivating greed? Are we cultivating renunciation, letting go, right? So these moments are like these powerful choice points. Like, how do I want to train myself, right? How do I want to train my mind? So pay attention. Yeah, in the back. Marna, yeah. Right, right. It's, it's a really interesting question. And I think actually the how do I deal with my kids is basically the same question as how do I deal with my own mind <laughs> around this, right? Uh, and like you have some choices around it. And it's absolutely true. Like it's just good to recognize this is counter to society, right? Like this is counter to the explicit <laughs> aims and ideas of uh sort of capitalist Marxist, sorry, market-based society, right? And not Marxist. Um, and also it's just counter to the, like, the way of the world, right? 
So the way of the world, not just like, I mean, this was counter to the way of the world in the Buddha's time too. I mean, more so now that there's like this whole culture of um, advertising and like, you know, churning out products and, you know. I saw this one book that was like people from different cultures um, sitting outside their living room with all their possessions in a pile. Has anyone seen this book? And uh, the Americans, it was just ridiculous. You know, it was just outrageous. Like the, the mound of stuff that, that the average, this was not even like some super rich American. It's like some middle-class American had in their living room piled outside compared to people in like most different countries, right? So the, the way of delusion, like the way of ignorance basically is, um, and here this is wrong view basically. So wrong view is like, my recipe for happiness is going to be to get as much stuff as possible and to try to arrange all circumstances to be pleasing to me uh, for now and forever. That is my strategy for happiness. And it's good to, again, be very honest with yourself and to look at the way that you deal with life on both a sort of micro level, even from the way of sort of constantly shifting our bodies when it's uncomfortable, to everything that we do is often informed by this strategy. Even as much as you know this on an intellectual level, like that's not going to work, right? It's like, oh, if I get this next thing, it'll be good or better. Uh, If I get more stuff, it'll actually be better, right? So it actually requires a questioning of like, is this actually true, right? Is this actually true? Does getting more stuff make me happier and happier? And there have been studies for people who like this kind of study kind of stuff, you know, of sort of like, well, once people have basic needs met, so it's true, poverty is no fun. Like, no one's saying that not having enough to eat is great, right? So, but once you have your basic bodily needs met, basic needs for food and shelter met, the amount of happiness that's gained by more and more stuff is, like, incrementally less and less, you know? And it actually is also not necessarily true that, like, richer people are happier than poorer people or that richer countries are happier than poorer countries, so it's good to notice this. You know, it's good to be aware of this and to like, like tune into this. This is sort of like the, the reasoning, chewing on this aspect of, of things too. Um, so even like, uh, you know, there's that, um, there's these magazines, you know, you're talking about gossip magazines about celebrities and stuff. And um, I remember when I, I worked in one organization and we got this one, Us Weekly, in, the, in our sort of break room. And I used to jokingly call it Dukkha Weekly, right? Because, uh, you know, you got it. And basically it was these people who were like rich and beautiful and famous. Uh, and basically like all the calamities of their life. So like their relationships falling apart and they're in like rehab and, you know, they're having affairs and, you know, all this drama. So objectively speaking, like, okay, clearly being rich and famous and uh, beautiful is not making them significantly happier seemingly than, you know, other people that you know, right? So that's not really the recipe for happiness, right? Or just paying it, but the, the monkey mind, you know, the, the deluded mind is constantly using this as a strategy. And sometimes we don't even see how this happens. Most of the time we don't see how this happens. Um, I had a friend come over and stay with me um, relatively recently and she was like, you know, just hanging up her coat in my closet and she was like, why do you have so many um, sneakers, right? Like athletic shoes. And so then I, st- I was like, well, these ones I wear at you know, these ones are waterproof, and then these ones are for, you know, this kind of sport, and then these ones are blue, and then, you know, and as I was describing it, it was just so ridiculous, like, as I was saying it, I was like, yes, perhaps I don't need that many sneakers, you know, like, (laughs) 
And, you know, because they were sneakers, it still seems very humble and it's okay. You know, if they were like Manolo Blahnik, whatever, $1,000 shoes, then clearly it would be excess. But, you know, because of sneakers, it was fine. But it was not fine. You know, it's just like, okay, how much do we need? And uh, just noticing in all these different ways. So there's the acquisitiveness. And then there also, I think, is this, you know, sort of generosity and renunciation. So how much do we need and where do we live on that scale? You know, so one of my teachers said, you know, you have one pair of feet and how many pairs of shoes, right? So that, that came to me when I was doing my sneaker inventory and trying to justify each, each pair of uh, athletic shoes, right? Uh, it's like, oh, well, maybe there's some people who actually don't have any shoes who might benefit from having <laughs> shoes rather than me keeping these umpteen pairs for like, you know, when it's night and it's raining and I need a black shoe or whatever, you know. So anyway, yeah. Um, I have a question about taking things that are from nature. Mm. So um, especially like energy. Hmm. Like energy, do you mean like solar energy? Or what do you mean energy? Like, uh, uh, one thing more like gas. Uh-huh. Like, do you not go on trips to other countries because you know that someday you won't, you know, it's just not enough. Yeah, so that's also a good point. Like there's sort of the individual level of it and then there's sort of like the way we as individuals interact with, the, with nature as a whole or with society as a whole. And here's where sort of like there are these different systems like of us sucking up, you know, gas and using it for our transportation and stuff, right? Or uh, just our whole relationship with the environment that is actually unsustainable, right? Uh, And uh, like paying attention to how do I want to participate in this? You know, like how much do I want to participate in this? How do I participate in this? And then seeing where like in particular cases or sort of overall you want to fall. So some people do radical things. There's a guy who uh, actually lives in Marin who decided that he was going to um, stop taking all motorized transport. He was just going to walk everywhere. Right? Um, he was actually kind of a remarkable guy, and, and then this became this whole big thing. Then he also actually decided then to take a vow of silence. He decided idle chatter was out. He decided like all talk was out. So he took like a vow of silence, and he decided he wasn't going to uh, take any motorized transport, only bicycle and walk places. You guys remember his name, John? John Francis. Francis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, it became this whole big thing. Like he actually affected a lot of people uh, by his choice to do that. You know, people were like at first thought he was kind of crazy, and then it kind of made people think. You know, and uh, it's not saying that you have to do that per se, but I think like like there are choices that we can make. And now I think we're people as a society like we're becoming more aware of that. So people are like, oh yeah, carbon trade-off credits or something, or like, oh yeah, actually taking airplanes does affect the environment in this big way, and, you know, like, uh, cause and effect, basically. You know, it's like understanding cause and effect on more and more levels, and then uh, understanding, like, well, where do I want to fit into this, or where can I fit into this, or what should I do? So it's a good question to hold, you know. Yeah, Digby. Um, I wanted to quickly go back to that um, vivid um, image of the stick. Mm. It was more. It was more like, um, like the sort of visceral conscience level shrinking away from uh, icky action, uh, wrong action, 
I mean, I'm saying icky because like the shit and icky, right? Um, of sort of like, Ugh, like, Ugh, I can't do that. No, the... <laughs> No, no, the idea, the idea is that we have these, actually, this natural reaction. Like, we have this natural reaction of shrinking away from wrong, from doing wrong, right? Or people who are not, like, psychotic, right? So, you know, by and large, there is this, some kind of, like, uh, gauge in us that is like, oh, you know, that... And a lot of times it's only after the fact, too. So many of you might have noticed in meditation that sometimes, like, you get this sort of life review situation coming up. Like you get kicked up different memories of things you have done in the past. Even sometimes like very small things that you were at the moment just glossed over. Like you said something like kind of nasty to someone and then you moved on. But it didn't disappear. It was there. It's coming back six years later, 15 years later in meditation, right? So it's like that sense of the shrinking away. So it's considered good actually. Just as it would be good I encourage you to avoid picking up sticks covered in shit or burning hot sticks. It's actually good to avoid taking action that's uh, like unskillful action. Yeah, that's the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it's like the fear of like, oh, I think if if I did this, this would happen, and you know, like that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I read that one. You know, here, here we get into like the, the nitty-gritty sort of workings of karma. And um, I don't know about that, to be honest. Like, uh, I mean, both are bad. Just avoid murder overall, right? <laughs> Would be the broad message here, right? <laughs> but it's, uh, there are sort of different, um, different understandings about sort of like the, the um, gravity of different... Of killing, so it also says actually that like um, the the gravity of of different karmic acts of like uh, who is the being that you kill, right? Um, so that actually killing sort of a higher being is considered worse than ki- killing a sort of lower order being. So, uh, but both are not good. So don't kill anything. Again, that's the message, right? But uh, so there are some thi- some things within karma that are like sort of different gradations of that. But sort of the bright line thing is like avoid destroying life. I mean, in some ways, it's like, yeah, avoid destroying life unless if you could bring things back to life, then maybe it wouldn't be a problem, right? Like, if you could kill things, if you also could, like, magically incarnate things, then maybe it would be okay, okay, but it, we can't, right? Like, you, it's, it's actually this act of arrogance. It's like this moment, like, from, so let's look at that for a moment. So in the killing with hatred, it's like there's self and other, and then it's like, you annoy me, so I, or I am having... Uh, state of hatred, so I'm going to obliterate you, right? So again, it's this misunderstanding. Here's where it's like delusion or wrong view. Is like there's this idea that the problem is that. The problem is the object. Actually, the problem is the hatred arising within oneself. You know, that's the thing that you want to remove. But we think like, oh, it's this. I'll just knock this out and then that'll be gone, right? But actually, it's in our own mind where the problem is. Similar with greed, right? Motivated by greed. Um, I mean, I would argue that in any act of killing, there has to be some hatred, sort of violence kind of thing going on. But it could be motivated by greed, like, oh, I will get something from this person, right? So again, there's like the greed. Anytime there's greed, it's sort of like there's this object, and I must have this object. It's like a little bit more deceptive, because in that moment uh, of greed, we notice that we're disturbed. But we think we're disturbed because we don't have the object, so we think, oh, the problem is that I don't have that object, so I must have that object. If I'm united with that object, if I own that object, then I'll be at peace. So we again posit it, posit it in the external world, whereas actually the thing that's disturbing our peace is the state of greed. It has nothing to do with the object. 
you can see this when you notice that the object keeps changing, right? You get that thing, and then a little while later, it's like another thing. So there's sort of insert photo here quality to the whole situation, you know? And it's still the same, you know, lurching of mind. So it's actually the lurching of mind that's the problem. The, when the, the lurching of mind can uh, be gone, the state of peace is there. It doesn't actually have to do with getting or not getting the object. Right? Uh, but both are based in delusion. So, uh, yeah, back. Right, right. Yeah. I would say the place to notice this, like how to answer that question, is to notice in yourself if the urge for harming someone else, if the urge for violence arises, notice at times if it's motivated by greed. Or notice if at times it's motivated by hatred. You actually get, get familiar with all the different varieties of that. Notice if it's motivated by jealousy, like what that's like. You know, notice these different elements of it. Right? So again, you know there's this saying, it's like if you point the finger out at someone else, three fingers pointing back at you. Right? <laughs> so so not, the, the, turn back, turn back, like look at, at what's going on here all the time. So yeah, Anna. Mm-hmm. I had a question um, about sexual Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so to that one, there is, so there's sort of like the basic, you know, again, like the sort of bright line thing, like don't kill living beings, don't steal things. So the, the, the one like that for sexual misconduct is around harm. So the Buddha did say a few specific things around it. Um, and the specific things he said often were aimed at sort of heterosexual men. So now we'll have to like translate that to the rest of us, right? myself included, right? Uh, so, like, not to uh, have sexual relations with people who are married. So, not to break the commitments that are existing between other people and yourself, right? Um, or if you're married, basically, right? Um, also, not to force people to have sex. Anyone of any variety, right? So, not to coerce someone, right? Uh, also, he actually said not to have sex with people who are, like, servants or in some, you know, so basically that's some sort of coercive relationship, so that implies also employees or, you know, someone over whom you have power, um, where that person basically couldn't say no. So even if it's not officially raping someone, that they don't have the choice to say no, right? Um, and then also not to have sex with someone who is underage, right? Who's, uh, you know, th- that time they call it, like, under the protection of their parents, so those were the ones that he said strictly like avoid uh, those situations. And then aside from that, 
he didn't say. Right? Now, um, you know, some of the things that, that I was adding on are sort of more, you know, modern versions of, you know, plus my own experience of recognizing, like, I think sexuality is this very, very powerful force that can be, uh, can be very beautiful. It can be uh, one of the most uh, intimate ways we can connect with another human being, right? And also, it can be the most damaging, the way that we can damage each other the most, because uh, we are very vulnerable, and we're particularly vulnerable both physically and also emotionally, you know, in some ways, uh, even though people are wired differently, I think that uh, connecting with someone else sexually is a very intimate moment. Uh, and there's a strong possibility of uh, love and connection, but also a strong possibility of harm. You know? So it's, I think it's just good to recognize that, both to acknowledge like our own power in a relationship with someone else, but also actually to take care of yourself and to recognize, like, oh yeah, when I engage with someone in this way, like there's this possibility. So that also means in terms of caring for yourself, attending to what kinds of um, sexual engagements you get involved in, I would say. And to the one about, like, then, so this is all about, like, saving yourself or paying attention to your own behavior. So part of that is because that's the main thing we can directly influence, right? And also, if we, if we can't attend to that, then uh, how can we actually attend to anything else, right? So that's a place to start with it. But then also, there is this sort of larger uh, context for it, which is in society. And then I think that we might have different motivations or different things that we pay attention to that are like, yeah, these are different ways in which uh, I am aware of interconnection and I do want to influence others or I do want to actually see the way in which society influences me uh, and and try to make changes or something like that. So the emphasis in the right action on the sort of like most basic level is to notice this in yourself and to try to work with that. But also there is an encouragement to like take the positive action and then how far out that positive action goes can be like very, very far. Was there something in particular you were thinking of around that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question about like how to communicate this to others. I mean, even in just the way that um, these are spoken, there's nothing particularly sort of like Buddhist about it, you know? It's like like aware, like that all beings wish to be happy and alive, you know? Like, oh yeah, like that's, they're not something particularly like sectarian about that. Like, it's just actually true, right? Uh, and that's true of all of the Dharma. It's not like, um, you know, now it's become a like ism thing in some ways, but it's it's actually just about the truth the way things are. Some of how you can see this is because there are pieces of this in many different traditions, or even non-traditions, you know? Like, I mean, I feel like um, there are people who are realized, or there are people who are wise, who have many different labels of culture and religion on them, right? 
but they've come to the same things. And so then it's just true, right, when you pay attention in this way. Um, I mean, it's kind of in particular cases like how you want to talk about it. Um, within Buddhism, there's, always a, there's actually a spectrum too. So there actually are like proselytizing uh, Buddhists too. <laughs> Not as much as in some religions, but there are like some sort of like more like uh, what we have is such a helpful way, like I want to go out and tell you about it-ish kind of thing. Uh, my own experience is that it doesn't really work <laughs> that well, you know, like when you try to like force people to listen to you or when you come at something from a sort of self-righteous way, um, it usually is just kind of annoying to people and uh, they don't listen that much to you. Or uh, I partly extrapolate this from my own reactions to when people come at me like that about whatever it is, you know, when someone comes at me and they're like, you should do this and you should do that and my way is good and your way is bad, Right. It's difficult to like take it seriously or really engage with them in that way. They've already built this like separation, right? But if it's actually possible to have a real conversation with someone, you know, about um, what's happening and about cause and effect, like sometimes it helps people to drop to a different level of paying attention, you know, or sometimes just from how you are in the world, which might be um, unusual. Someone might ask you, like, "Oh, why do you do that?" It's like, oh, well, how come you didn't take that Sports Illustrated from the you know, dentist office? Right? And then you can say, like, oh, actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I actually have taken this vow not to take things that are not given to me. And they'll be like, well, why? Even old magazines, why? And then you can explain, like, oh, it's actually the power of the mind. To, you know? So I think those conversations are usually much more interesting and helpful to people than the ones in which it's like, my belief system says this. And, you know what I mean? Like, and that. And, and it's good to notice also when you're engaged in conversations with people, even in that moment, uh, like what's my intention or motivation or, you know, stuff like that. And, and you have to kind of feel it out in individual circumstances too. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can ask at the front desk, may I have this magazine? You could, yes. Correct. And um, that kind of gives the other person that little opportunity to give, you know, and have that little delight, saying, oh, please keep the pen, you know? Um, so it, it, and it seems like that could work for the fairly trivial things like the pen, or for really, you know, um, heart of the matter things like sex. You know, being able to ask for what you want is can be part of this discipline of taking only what's given. Yes, yeah. I think that's, that's a very good point. And within sex, there's sort of like, you know, the things that I said that are main things, like obviously, so don't force someone to have sex and don't uh, abuse children and don't um, break commitments of people or have affairs with people, right? But then even within a mutually consensual adult sexual relationship, um, there's a lot of different areas to pay attention to, even within one sexual act, so to speak, right, between two adults of just noticing the different drives and intentions that arise within oneself, right, of at moments like actually acquisitiveness or objectifying the other person, right, or of moments of aggression, perhaps, or of moments of love and connection and intimacy, right, and and being with that like as best you can and as best you can also, you know, acting from the places of wholesomeness, of connection, right. And then also noticing when someone is there with you also like what their ability is to do that too, right? Like what that connection is like. So it's not, um, uh, it's, it's a whole area of practice. I mean, this is why this is practice, right? It's practice for us to pay attention. It's practice for us to work with this. 
but it's, it's acknowledging cause and effect. Like these things do have an effect. And they are training ourselves. They're, we're like cultivating something, you know, all the time. Like I was saying, we're cultivating it in our mind. When we take actions with our body, that's an even stronger way of cultivating it. You know, it's a stronger way of, of uh, reinforcing that. So paying attention to this. So in this, in this training of the Eightfold Path, which is leading to liberation, it both is like, there's the cultivation and there's the, the sila ex- part of it. Uh, it's oriented also towards uh, samadhi, actually towards allowing ourselves to actually connect more deeply with experience, which if we're not engaged in these more chaotic drives all the time, it allows us to settle in more, right? Also, if you don't have as many things to regret, it allows you to settle in more, to be present more, right? Uh, It allows you to have a more sort of honest and uh, whole experience as a human being, right? So this is kind of the expression of wholeness, right? Someone who is able to behave like this. This is an expression of wholeness. And it's good to recognize, like, yeah, there's all these ways in which, like, I'm not totally whole yet, you know? There's, like... And there's some, maybe some areas more than others which are areas for attention for me, right? So it's good to pay attention to that, to notice that, and then to uh, attend to that. So probably we should take a break, uh, but I want to give you a question to consider during the uh, break, which didn't, it didn't come up, but uh, how come the fifth precept is not part of uh, right action? So the fifth precept was the one around uh, abstaining from uh, substances that cloud the mind but it's actually not uh, explicitly stated in here. So that's a question for you to consider. Why, why would that be? Why is that in there? Okay. Why is it not in there? Yeah, why is it not in there? Why do you think it might not be in there? Right, so, so let's take a 10-minute break, stretch, drink, and come back again then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.